Billy Graham once said, when we come to Christ, we're no longer the most important person in the world to us. Christ is. Instead of living only for ourselves, we have a higher goal to live for Jesus. Of course, what does living for Jesus look like, right? How do we, how do we become more like him? Well, it starts by believing what he believed and doing what he did, no matter the consequences to you personally. Which means of all the choices you make every single day, big and small, there's one choice that drives them all. Me or Jesus? The answer to that one single question informs every other decision you will ever make for the rest of your life. Who will be the number one priority in my life? Me or Jesus? Who will get what he wants when it's the opposite of what the other wants? Me or Jesus? Who gets to decide how I'm going to treat other people today? Me or Jesus? Who determines how much I give of my time, my, my money, my abilities? Me or Jesus? Right. How about this one? Who gets the credit when I accomplish something noteworthy? Me or Jesus? So that's the question. Who am I going to live my life for today? Me or Jesus? See, every decision that you make, every day of your life, is ultimately a product of that one choice. And it's a choice that you have to continually make day after day after day. Me or Jesus. It's why he said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would choose me, let him deny himself. It's one or the other. And take up his cross daily, every single day. And follow me, Luke 9, 23. Because me or Jesus is a decision you have to make every single day. Just read the Bible. And you'll find that every time one of God's people made a choice that was anti-Christ, against God and his will, it's because they were choosing themselves over him. Even when they ended up following the leading of the enemy, it wasn't because they were choosing Satan over God, not intentionally anyway. No, they were choosing themselves. Started with Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? They weren't knowingly choosing Satan over God. They were choosing themselves over God. When Satan tempted them, he didn't say, when you eat of the forbidden fruit, my eyes will be opened and I will be like God, so come follow me. No. He said, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When Adam and Eve made the choice to eat the forbidden fruit, they were choosing themselves over God. And we do the same thing in our lives. When we sin, we don't wake up in the morning and choose to follow Satan because we love him more than we love Jesus. No, when we sin, it's because sometimes we love ourselves more than we love Jesus. And so we choose to do what we want instead of what God wants. And it's a constant battle, this side of heaven, that we have to determine uh, we're going to engage in every single day of our lives. Otherwise, your natural inclination will always lead you to choose yourself over him every single time. And listen, when times are good, when, when life is easy, when we are particularly comfortable, right, when we're at what most people would describe as a good place in life, it's really easy to blur the lines between me or Jesus. Right? It's easy to try and justify choosing ourselves over him, which we'll talk more about in a bit, because we tend to believe, whether consciously or not, that God's greatest desire is for us to be happy. 
And so we justify choosing ourselves and what we want over him and what he wants under the belief that if it makes me happy, then it's good. And if it's good, then it must be God. Right? Adam and Eve couldn't have had it any better right before they sinned against God. They were living in a paradise with everything they would ever need provided for them. It was, it was when David stayed home from the battle, living in the lap of luxury in his palace that he chose to sin with Bathsheba. It was after the battle was over during the time of celebration that Saul sinned against God by keeping the spoils of war for himself and refusing to kill the enemy king as he was commanded to do by God. And it was while living in comfort, sleeping with the woman who wasn't his wife that Samson broke his Nazarite vow and sinned against God. All of these men chose themselves over God in times of comfort and ease and they tried to justify their choices. Why? Because choosing God is not always the easy path to take. You understand when it comes to me or Jesus, often choosing Jesus is the hard road. It disrupts our comfort and ease, often requiring us to forsake what we want in deference to what he wants. David Platt said the road that leads to heaven is risky, lonely, and costly in this world, and few are willing to pay the price. Following Jesus involves losing your life and finding a new life in him, which is what we're going to see in our story today as we continue working our way through the book of Revelation. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time. Revelation chapter 14, we'll begin by reading the first five verses. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So as John's vision continues, he sees the Lamb that is Jesus along with his army on Mount Zion, which is the fulfillment, by the way, of Psalm 2.6. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And the way that they prepare for battle is to sing a worship song to their king. I hope you understand the power in our worship, which not only magnifies Jesus, but it prepares us for the battles before us the hard roads that he often calls us to walk down because our worship takes the focus off of me and puts it squarely on Jesus who leads us into those battles. And there's a seal on their foreheads, the name of the Lamb and of his Father, as opposed to the mark of the beast on those who reject Christ, as we'll see. And this seal on their foreheads is a sign of possession and protection by God, promised to every conqueror in this spiritual war we're fighting in fulfillment of his promise to us back in uh, chapter 3, verse 12, right? It's, it's not their names on their foreheads, it's his name. A clear sign when it comes down to me or Jesus. These 144,000 have chosen Jesus. And it's probably the same group, the 144,000 described in chapter 7, verse 4, those Jewish and possibly Gentile believers who have trusted Christ as their Messiah during the great tribulation and have been martyred for his name's sake. And John says, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, 
For the virgins, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb, and in their mouth was, uh, no lie was found, for they're blameless. Uh, there were segments of the early church at the time who viewed this description of the 144,000 as virgins, literally. They considered celibacy as a form of perfection, actually, in one's own life. So like the second century theologian Marcion, uh, for example, established a church solely for celibates. And the third century great theologian and apologist, Origen, actually castrated himself to ensure chastity, okay? These were beliefs that they were deriving from the Israelites throughout the Old Testament who were routinely commanded to abstain from all sexual activity in preparation for war. Some examples being Deuteronomy 23, 9 through 11 and 1 Samuel 21, 5. But listen, they weren't necessarily virgins, right? They were, they were choosing God over themselves before entering battle by abstaining from sexual activity for a period of time in order to keep themselves focused on him instead of themselves because of the weight of what was coming. And there's an argument to be made here that the description of these 144,000 virgins is largely symbolic, not literal. Now, first of all, Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is described symbolically as a virgin. She's the virgin daughter of Zion in 2 Kings 19.21 and Lamentations 2.13. She's the virgin Israel in Jeremiah 18.13 and Amos 5.2. And conversely, when she lapses into idolatry, Israel is said to have played the harlot in Jeremiah 3.6 and Hosea 2.5. And that same figure is carried over into the New Testament where Paul writes to the Corinthians, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. You can see the obvious symbolism. And secondly, if you take this description of God's army literally as virgins, there's an implication then that sexual relationships between married believers are somehow defiling or somehow disqualifying for the people of God. And of course, we know that isn't true. Jesus himself said, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. Marriage is God's doing. Let not man separate, Matthew 19, five and six. So this description of the 144,000 may well be symbolic, describing the spiritual purity of those who've kept themselves pure from uh, the many defiling relationships available to us in the pagan world system that we all know we're living in. Either way, it's a clear description, and this is the point, of a group of people who under incredible distress, under immense pressure to choose themselves over Christ, under threat of persecution, great suffering, martyrdom, death, when it came down to choosing me or Jesus, they chose Jesus. And now they're preparing to follow him into the greatest battle this world has ever known. Let's keep reading, verses six through 13. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, 
And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are those are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So after John sees the Lamb and his followers standing victorious on Mount Zion, we're now introduced to a series of three progressive angelic proclamations announcing a final opportunity for the people who remain on earth to repent. I mean, people ask me all the time, how can a good God, if there's really a God in heaven, how can he let bad things happen? to people. Listen, God has been screaming from our creation, I love you, and if you'll simply follow me, your life will be blessed immeasurably. And we thumb our noses at God. We do the opposite of what he calls and commands us to do, and then we wonder why bad things happen to people on this earth. If you've been here going through these sermons with me, You've seen all of the things that have happened up to this point on the earth, and God is still, after people have rejected him day after day, time after time after time, he's still calling for people to repent and be saved because he loves them. It's incredible. He's announcing a final opportunity for people who remain on earth to repent before it's too late as the hour of God's judgment has come, including the fall of Babylon and the eternal punishment of those who worship the beast. And then John hears a voice from heaven pronouncing blessed those who die in the Lord. And so first, a warning of judgment to the unbelieving world is announced as a flying angel proclaims an eternal gospel, a command that every nation is to fear, give glory to, and worship God the creator. Couldn't be more clear. And then a second angel announces that Babylon, which represents this pagan culture we're living in, material prosperity and pleasure, the power to seduce uh, people into idolatry and adultery against the Lord. Babylon has fallen. There's nothing left here for you to follow but me, echoing Isaiah 21.9. And a third angel announces that the worshipers of the beast will endlessly be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Which, which by the way, was widely understood at the time. This fact that hell is eternal, was widely understood at the time, and that wicked people are not annihilated or otherwise put out of existence at death as so many are fond of teaching today. Now, the doctrine of hell, it's offensive to modern people. It's supposed to be, it should be, because the punishment of the damned, according to scripture, is not a temporary measure. In fact, it was Jesus, more than anyone else in scripture, who spoke about the fires of hell. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter the life lame with two feet than to be thrown into hell, than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes to sin, he says, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark 9, 44 through 48. I'm telling you, we're not doing anyone any favors by teaching them that hell isn't as bad as Jesus made it out to be. And again, this, this is widely understood in ancient texts, even those outside of the Bible. The apocryphal book of Enoch 
speaks of the kings of the earth, I'm quoting, burning as the straw in the fire before the face of the holy, 1 Enoch 48.9, 2 Baruch 34, which, by the way, the Orthodox Church includes in the Bible. It says, the souls of the wicked will the more waste away when they shall see all these things, referring to these passages. The point is, hell is not a temporary experience. It is, in fact, a much worse fate than that which the false prophet decreed for believers and followers of Christ back in chapter 13, verse 15, which included economic sanctions, right? Our inability to buy or sell if we don't take the mark and ultimately martyrdom, death. Because as John learns in verse 13, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So clearly, there are much worse things in this life than death at least for those who die in the Lord, because we are promised to spend eternity with him. Okay, and, and before we move on, I just want to address this mark of the beast that is mentioned numerous places in Revelation, specifically what it may or may not be, because there is an idea circulating, especially since COVID showed up, that when Revelation 18.23 says, all nations were deceived by your sorcery, that because the word sorcery in that verse is the ancient Greek word pharmakia, which is derived from the root word pharma, which is the root for many words, including pharmaceuticals, there are folks who I think sincerely are concerned that this prophetic uh, voice is a reference to the coronavirus vaccines being the mark of the beast. I've heard it many times. Well, listen, first of all, pharmakia also means sorcery, witchcraft, and magic arts, that isn't uh, symbolism, that means literally those things, okay, which is the context that Revelation 18.23, by the way, was written in, because as we saw back in chapter 13, verse 13, referring to the false prophet, it says he performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. The other instance where we find a pharmakia, by the way, it's used twice in Revelation, is all the way back in chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, which says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries, pharmakia, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts, both of these instances where pharmakia is used in Revelation, it's specifically directly referring to occult practices and magic, not pharmaceutical drugs. Now, second, and this is more important, when the mark of the beast is specifically referred to in many places in Revelation, not only is it not the word pharmakia in the Greek, it's the word uh, karagma, which means a stamp or an imprint, a brand, but more importantly, the mark of the beast in Revelation is always, in every instance, connected directly to wanton, intentional, willful worship. In other words, no one is going to casually or accidentally take the mark of the beast. You can take a deep breath, okay? Not only will the beast be clearly revealed at that point, but the people who take his mark will be actively and willfully worshiping him as God. In other words, they will know exactly what they're doing when they take his mark. Right? God's not trying to trick us. We'll know exactly what's happening. So what is the mark of the beast then? Well, the short answer is we don't know. We don't know. In addition to vaccines and medications, 
There are lots of theories about advancements and things like RFID chips that can now be implanted beneath the skin that hold our medical records and financial information and so on. There are theories about barcodes, visible or not, to the naked eye being tattooed or stamped on people's hands and foreheads. Some say it's simply a symbol that represents people's loyalty to the Antichrist. We don't know. We will know. But we don't know now exactly what the mark will be other than the fact that it will be some kind of identification required by the Antichrist in order to buy or sell, and again, more importantly, it will only be given to those who knowingly worship the Antichrist. Okay, so why would anyone worship the Antichrist? Well, I'll tell you, because they will believe at the end of the day that that's actually what's best for themselves. In other words, it's all going to boil down to a choice that everyone has to make sooner or later. Me or Jesus. Because it's that one choice that will ultimately determine every other decision we will ever make in this life. A.W. Tozer said a whole new generation of Christians has come up believing that it is possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. Let's finish reading our story for today and then we'll circle back around to see how all of this applies to us. Verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside of the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So two reapers appear in heaven with sharp sickles in hand, and angels emerge from the temple with a directive from God, put in your sickle and reap. The first was one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head, which is none other than the risen Christ, as prophesied in Daniel 7. 13 and 14, and then the second reaper, an angel, gathers grapes from the earth's vine to be crushed in the winepress of the wrath of God. So the first reaping, the grain harvest, is the Son of Man gathering believers as he prophesied he would in Matthew 13, 30, while the second, the grape harvest, is the graphic destruction of the wicked as prophesied in Joel 3, 12 through 13. And the, the difference between these two groups, how they die, where they spend the rest of eternity, the difference all comes down to a single choice that every single one of them made at one point or another in their lives. Me or Jesus. In fact, this entire revelation, uh, chapter of Revelation, this entire chapter is a picture of, of the juxtaposition, the contrast between those who choose themselves and those who choose Jesus. The first five verses are the description of those who've been redeemed from the earth, as John puts it in verse three, those who chose Jesus. When the last seven verses that we just read describe both groups, those who choose Jesus and those who choose themselves over Jesus, while right in the middle, verses six through 13, we find people who are still on the earth, those who ultimately still have to make that choice. And so angels are sent to warn them of the consequences of those choices, good or bad, 
depending on which choice they make. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. It couldn't be any clearer. These are warnings for those who choose themselves over Jesus. Well, to believers, he says, here's the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. These are promises of God to those who keep the commandments of God and keep their faith in Jesus. Well, why would he call for them to endure to the end? Why would he say to believers that there are blessings in store for those who keep the commandments of God and those who keep their faith in Jesus? Well, because obviously there will be some who don't. Some who don't keep his commandments, some who don't keep their faith in Jesus. In the last days, given the choice of personal prosperity and cultural acceptance, or the inability to make money or buy what we need and, and being rejected by popular culture, in those days there will be professing believers who ultimately choose themselves over Jesus. Those who refuse to keep his commandments and refuse to keep their faith in him. Here's the whole point. Here's why this isn't just a story about some mystical time far off in the future. Because listen, people don't get to that point where they deny their faith in Christ and their willingness to serve him. People don't get to that point of rejecting Christ overnight because of a single event. No, they don't. Choosing me or Jesus starts with little decisions we make every single day when times are good, when we're comfortable, when there's no pressure. It's the small decisions where we choose personal happiness over Christ-like wholeness and all the little choices we make every day that lead to big choices down the road, the kinds of choices where people ultimately reject Christ and their faith in him that they once professed boldly. I'm telling you, I've seen it over and over and over again. Friends of mine, pastors, worship leaders, ministry leaders, and professing believers from all walks of life who once boldly professed faith in Christ who now flatly reject him. And, and they will often point to some big event. The church hurt me is a favorite one. Listen, there are plenty of them, but the truth is I've watched so many of those folks, I'm talking about personal friends of mine, make a thousand decisions before that big moment where they chose themselves over Jesus over and over and over and over and over again until it became a pattern in their lives to the point that all they needed was a convenient excuse to reject the faith based on some hurt or some disagreement or some disappointment. And I'm, I'm telling you, that's never where it starts. No, it starts by making your personal happiness a priority over Christ-likeness in your life. And simple little decisions every day. Because listen, listen, if anyone has ever been hurt by the church, if there was ever anyone who could justify denouncing it and walking away from it, it's Jesus. I mean, on the threshold of being betrayed, abandoned, denied by his closest friends, unjustly arrested, mercilessly tortured, nailed to a Roman cross, and worst of all, by far, the focal point of God's own wrath, knowing all of that was not only to be his fate, but imminently so, Jesus said to his disciples, my soul is sorrowful, even to death, Mark 14, 34. 
Yet as you continue to read the story, you find Jesus not only not running away from his fate or trying to change his circumstances, but quite intentionally and purposefully embracing them. Listen, it's not because that's what made him happy. He just said, my soul is sorrowful even to death. So why then? Why in the world would you willingly pursue something that makes you so utterly unhappy? It's because Jesus' primary goal in life wasn't to be happy. It was to be like the Father, which is exactly what the Father wanted from Jesus, and it's exactly what he wants from you and me. You see, despite a lot of what is being taught today, God's greatest desire for you and your life is not for you to be happy. It's for you to be like Christ. Jesus said it. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. In other words, you see what I'm doing. You should be doing the same thing. Does that mean God wants us to be miserable? Of course not. But believe it or not, there are things in this life that are more important than your personal happiness all the time. I mean, come on, if you're a parent, you already know this, right? What would make your four-year-old happy would be to eat nothing but candy every time they wanted it. That would make me happy. But as a parent, you know that's not what's going to make them healthy or whole. So as much as you want them to be happy, it's more important that you deny their happiness at times to do something for them that is better than their personal happiness in that moment. Which means when it comes to choosing happiness or Christ-likeness, which aren't always the same, right? I mean, sometimes they are, sure. Sometimes doing what makes us happy and doing what Jesus would do are the same thing, but sometimes they're not the same. In fact, sometimes those two things couldn't be any more different, just like they were different for Jesus when it came time for the cross. And yet he chose to do what the Father wanted him to do instead of what would make him happiest in that moment. Yet if we're being honest, how often when we're faced with the choice between doing what makes us happy and doing what makes us more like Christ, when those two things aren't the same, I'm just asking you how often do we choose happiness? And and look, the problem with living that way, among other things, is that our focus is constantly on our circumstances and other people's behavior, which is why people leave the church and leave the faith, by the way, because they're focused on their immediate circumstances and the behavior of other people instead of being focused on Jesus Christ, because that's where we most often find immediate happiness, in favorable circumstances and in behavior by other people that feeds our personal desires. And yet, whereas Christ is immovable and unchanging, our circumstances and other people's behavior are constantly changing, which means our happiness becomes a moving target. Right? It's the very reason why so many Christians feel so unfulfilled, so unsatisfied with their lives, because what makes them feel happy on any given day changes like the weather. Okay, so what's the answer then? What's the remedy? Do we all just resign ourselves to a life of mediocrity and misery? Of, of course not, not at all. The answer is to fix our hearts and minds on something far deeper than our feelings, something greater than happiness, something that never changes. Okay, if you want satisfaction, you want fulfillment in your life that abides, that remains, even when your circumstances change, then your focus has to be on something that abides, something that remains unchanged. 
That's why the Apostle Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 through 13. You see, Paul came to understand that even uh, those circumstances constantly change. There's a faith that never falters. There's a hope that never fades. And there is a love that never fails, which can only be found in Jesus Christ. And I'm just telling you, this is such a formative truth in our development as disciples of Christ. In fact, this, this one bit of truth will transform your life overnight if you'll let it. Because instead of thinking to yourself, once my circumstances change or this other person's behavior changes for the better, then my life will be better, which is exactly how most of us think most of the time, if we're being honest. Instead of focusing on what constantly changes, if you will fix your heart and your mind on what never changes, regardless of your circumstances or other people's behavior, the faith, hope, and love that is available to you in Christ alone at all times, in every circumstance, no matter what is happening or what other people are doing when you fix your heart and mind on that you will experience satisfaction and fulfillment that is infinitely deeper than the ever fleeting feelings of happiness and, and do you understand I, I'm not down on on uh, happiness and neither is Jesus we all love to be happy and that's good but his word is very clear on the matter for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 4. See, happiness is great, and I'm all for it. But happiness is not God's greatest desire for you. What can only be found in Jesus is. But that also means you have to choose. You have to decide what is going to be the number one priority in my life. Me or Jesus. Author Larry Crabb once wrote, many of us place top priority on not on becoming Christ-like in the middle of our problems, but on finding happiness. I must firmly and consciously, by an act of my will, reject the goal of becoming happy and adopt the goal of becoming more like the Lord. You see, every decision you make, every day of your life, is ultimately a product of that one choice. It's a choice that you have to continually make, day after day after day after day. Me, or Jesus. It's why he said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would choose me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross every single day, and choose to follow me. Because me or Jesus is the decision you have to make every day. Charles Spurgeon said, you cannot be Christ's servant if you're not willing to follow him, cross and all. What do you crave? A crown, and it must be a crown of thorns if you're to be like him. Do you want to be lifted up? So you shall, but it will be upon a cross. 
me or Jesus, starts with all the little decisions we make every day. Who's going to get what he wants today? Me or Jesus? Who gets to decide how I'm going to treat people today? Me or Jesus? Who determines how much I'm going to give of myself today? Me or Jesus? From the moment I wake up until I lay back down, who am I going to live my life for? Who's it going to be? Me or Jesus? Let's pray.